Let's take our Bibles this morning and hear from the Word of God in the book of Hebrews. That's on page 1003 if you're using the church Bible. Hebrews chapter 3, chapter 4 rather, reading from verse 14. And before we read, let's pray uh, together. Almighty God, we know that our human words are but a breath that flies away with the wind and then is lost. But your word is stronger than all powers, vanquishing and tearing down all the strongholds built in men's and women's resistance to you, mightier than death itself, and able to accomplish all your will. Please, we pray. Bless the reading and preaching of your word amongst us today for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's read together the word of God from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need." Now, you you may be here for the first time and therefore unfamiliar with this book, but I think you can see from the title of the book that the author is writing to people from a Hebrew background, that is, he's writing to people who have a Jewish background, and the particular people that he's writing to are people who have come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So they are, if you would describe them, as converted Jews. And their background as Jews meant that regularly they would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and then in Jerusalem they would visit the temple, and there at the temple they would see the grand ornamentation of the building, they would see the great ceremony as the priests in their priestly regalia paraded in and out of the temple. They would see the high priest with his headdress and his uh, beautiful gold and silver uh, uh, clothing and jewels. They, they would see the, the animals being sacrificed upon the altar. They would see the approach of the high priest as he went away from the crowds, through the priests, to the very back of the temple, to the great curtain, and then disappear behind the curtain, where it would sprinkle the throne of God or the mercy seat with the blood of an animal. It was theater. It was ceremony. It was impressive. And now they've become Christians, and there is no temple. Now they've become Christians. There there is no priesthood with its ornamental ceremonial robes. There is no sacrifice. There is no grand approach, as it were, and everything seems so bland and bare Uh, in comparison with their past. And so the writer is writing to them, and he's reminding them of what they have 
as Christians. And as he describes what they have as Christians, he is saying to them at this point, there's a sense in which you are right, we have no priest. But we have a priest. We have the priest. We have the Pontifex Maximus, the high priest. We have a great high priest over the house of God, Jesus, the Son of God. And he describes them. Do you see? He describes this high priest in three ways in this passage, as a great high priest, first of all, as a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Just as in their olden days they would see the the high priest in the temple go behind that curtain and vanish from their view for a time while he went into that place which was the notional earthly address of the heavenly God. But this Jesus, this priest, has passed through the heavens, through the sky and through the universe of planets and stars and beyond into that place that God has created where creatures, angels and archangels and humans like ourselves may have a meeting with Him, be in His presence, a created place. We call it heaven or glory. We call it the place where God is to which one day we ourselves will arrive. So, as we think of that, we think of where this Jesus, the Son of God, is right now in heaven, in glory, sharing the glory of God. And when we think about that for a moment, a number of questions may very well come in to your mind. For example, we emphasized last time that, that it is Jesus who has ascended, passed through all the heavens. Earlier on in chapter 1, we we're told that He is there and He's seated in the throne of all power in the universe and beyond. So, you may want to ask yourself this question, as the Heidelberg Catechism does in one of its questions, isn't Christ supposed to be with us all the days of our lives to the end of the world? Isn't He supposed to be with us? Well, how can He be with us if He is there? Maybe you have that question here this morning. And the Catechism answers, and indeed this passage of Scripture answers, that you are right to think that the Lord Christ in His human nature is not here. He is there, because in our human nature, we can only be in one place at one time. Did your mother ever say that to you? I can only be in one place at one time. Or perhaps she complained, do you think I can be everywhere at all times? No, your mother couldn't, and you can't, because we're in mortal bodies. And the Lord Jesus Christ, even though he has, His body is now immortal because it's a body, can only be in one place at one time. But He is not only Jesus, He is the Son of God, and as God, He is everywhere everywhere in His divinity and majesty and grace and by His Spirit. Therefore, He is never absent from us in His deity wherever we are. Well, you may say, does that mean that there is a kind of division that we want to make between the two natures of Christ that you can separate 
His humanity which is in heaven and His divinity that is with me here today? And the answer, of course, is no, you can't. His divinity is not limited, and, uh, his delimit- is not limited by His humanity. His divinity is bigger than His humanity. It was never captured by His humanity or contained by His humanity or bordered by His humanity. Even when He is in that little cradle that Mary placed Him in, His humanity is there, needing His mother to feed Him and change Him and care for Him. As God, He is everywhere, upholding everything by the power of His might. Without any division, He's still a baby, but He's God Almighty controlling all things. He has passed through the heavens. But what particular advantage is it to us that Christ in His human nature has now gone into heaven on our behalf, and that He is there in His human nature? And the Catechism answers this. It says He is our advocate in heaven. He is our representative. He is our to-go person who has gone to heaven on our behalf, and He has taken to heaven our flesh. And He's there in heaven in the presence of God on our behalf. He is the standing reminder to the angels and the archangels, to the principalities and the powers, to all the angels and hosts of God. He is the standing testament, His very presence there, the wounds that He bears in His human frame still to this day are the standing testimony that we one day can be with Him because He has, by His passion, accomplished our full salvation. Not only that, we have our own flesh and blood in heaven. We have someone in our flesh in heaven so that we know that one day we shall join Him in our flesh, that Job's prediction that he made very early on in the story of humanity, when Job, whose books in the Bible, said, in my flesh I will see God, will come true. We're not meant for endless recycling. We're not meant for floating around as ethereal spirits in some kind of never-never land but to be enfleshed in the presence of the enfleshed Son of God. So, if you are asking that question, I've just answered it. But there's another question you might be asking. <clears throat> I get to ask the questions as well as answer them, which is a great, a great thing. Another question you might, be, you might be asking, perhaps subterraneally the back of your mind, is this. If the divine Son is so great and glorious, if He has gone to heaven, if He's exalted above all the heavens, how can I be sure that He's thinking about me today, that He's interested in me today, that He can be concerned about me today? I mean, I can only think about so many people. I can only care for so many people. How can He, as the man Christ Jesus, care about me? That's a good question, isn't it? And the author answers the question. He says, because not only do we have a great high priest, we have a sympathetic high priest, for we do not have 
a high priest who is unable to sympathize. Do you see the, the kind of convoluted way in which he says this? He has a double negative, a double negation. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. That was a kind of technique. It was a way of saying to you, this is, I don't just want to say, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize. I want you to know we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. He's saying Christ has entered fully into our human experience of suffering and trial, and He knows the limitations, the physical and emotional limitations of what it means to be human. And as such, He is able to sympathize with us. Now, understand this word sympathy that's used here in the Greek is not used the way the word sympathy is used today. Today, this word has been watered down to mean a kind of vague emotional distress. I'm sympathizing with you if there's a little tear comes into my eye. You know, I, I, kind of an empathy that I feel, something I feel towards your condition or your situation. Nor, nor is this word sympathy, nor does it carry that slight air of condescension. The way some people say it, I sympathize with you. Or perhaps more colloquially, colloquially I feel your pain. You just want to slap them when they say that, because obviously they don't, or they wouldn't have said it. It's a horrible thing to say. No, this double negation is here to underline and to stress to us that we have one in heaven who actually sympathizes with us in a very definite and very clear way. Who is this one? Well, again, I remind you, He is Jesus, the Son of God. He is one who is both human and divine. That's going to be important for you to remember. He has the one who is both human and divine, the eternal Son of God, who has taken on our humanity, brings to His own humanity all the power of God to bear, and through Him to us all the power of God to bear when it comes to sympathizing with our circumstances and our need. That's an, that's an important thing to think about, isn't it? When you meditate on who Christ is and where He is, even though He's, ex, he's exalted above all the heavens, that does not disqualify Him for a second, for a nanosecond, to offer you comfort or to know what you are going through. When the prophet Isaiah was predicting the coming of the Messiah, he said this about Him, "'Surely He has borne our griefs.'" and carried our sorrows. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because He became truly human. His humanity was not a mask He wore. It was not a role that He played. He assumed real humanity to Himself with this one difference. You notice the writer tells us what that one distance is, difference is at the end of verse 15 yet without sin. In His human nature, Christ was and remains 
holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. What does that mean? It means not only did he not commit sin, it means that during his earthly life he was free from that innate tendency to sin that we bring with us into the world from the very earliest days. You will not have to teach your children to sin. I mean, there are sins when they're tiny or tiny sins, but they're still sins. And those early evidences of personality, by which we mean bad temper or, 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 or whatever, those early evidences of a will, another will in the home. There used to just be one will in the home, the wife's with the, the husband acquiescing. But now there are two wills in the home, both of which are usually employed on the poor man. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just testifying to my own experience. So, uh, the, there, there is the presence of multiplicities of wills, and that will is a will that's resistant to other wills in the, in the reality. That's what sin is. Sin is that innate tendency we have. Let me, let me put it like this. This is how we can describe it. We, t- temptation in itself, for example, the word temptation, the way we use the word, which means tempted to eat chocolate when you're not supposed to eat chocolate, that one, that, uh, and to sin when you're not supposed to sin. All, we use it in a whole variety of ways, don't we? When we use that word, then we, we must remind ourselves that, that we are all temptable, <clears throat> So, when we sin, we are tempted to sin by sin. It's sin in us that turns what would be just a test, perhaps, turns it into a temptation. We are tempted to sin by sin. We are tempted to actual sin by our habit of sinning. And we are tempted to outward sin by indwelling sin. But when it comes to the Lord Jesus, you see, He did not have that inward tendency, that innate tendency to sin. He was not tempted to sin by sin because of His holy nature. And He did not Temptation did not produce sin in him because of his perfect obedience. That last sentence with credits to John Owen, who knew a thing or two about sin and about Christ. So, temptation then targets something inside of us, and that thing inside of us, indwelling sin, answers to the prompting of temptation, and we fall. Satan finds a toehold in our lives, and he leverages it to our undoing. The goal of the evil one is to cause us to fall to a greater or lesser degree so that we contract the guilt of sin in our lives. This man, Christ Jesus, was without sin. Why? Because He was the Son of God, and as the Holy One of God, He could not sin. He was God manifest in the flesh. So that when the prince of this world, the devil, came and attacked Him, Jesus could say, Satan has found nothing in Me. 
no foothold, no crack in the door, no port of entry, no point of leverage. Not only was he the God-man, but he was filled with the Holy Spirit without measure. So the Holy Spirit was constantly there, supporting him, strengthening him, enabling him to resist the devil. Now, you may say, it doesn't really help me to know that Jesus can't fall into sin, couldn't fall into sin. I was reflecting on that, and if that's a question that's in your mind, let me put it like this. You may be tempted to wonder, for example, whether at some point in eternity, after a billion years of us being in eternity, there may be the possibility of somebody somewhere facing some kind of temptation and falling into sin. Jesus in His humanity is a standing testament to us that a human being can take all that hell has to pour out against him and resist it and resist it and resist it again. So let his sinlessness be an encouragement to you rather than a discouragement. Here in this passage, his sinlessness is meant to be an encouragement to you because of the implications of that for his human nature and for his ability to sympathize with you. Now, just think of it for a moment. This word sympathy points us in the direction of another word that we use probably not as wonderfully as we could, but we use it still today, the word compassion. Our Lord Jesus had perfect compassion in His human nature. You think about human nature for a moment. Think about yourself. Think of people you know. Think about those who have deep feeling and a sympathetic nature and an empathetic nature. And imagine that in a state of absolute perfection in the Lord Jesus. I mean, we can feel any of those things. We can feel for people, sympathize with them, empathize with them, and it may very well be real, but we have a doubt, I think, in our minds whether we're always as altruistic as we might be, or as understanding as we could be. But in Jesus, there is sheer goodness, compassion, mercy, and love, and it remains pure, perfect, untainted because of His sinless nature. Not only did He have perfect compassion in His human nature, He had perfect compassion as a gift of the Holy Spirit. John tells us that he had the Holy Spirit without measure. What does the Holy Spirit do when He is present in someone's life? He begins to produce the evidences of His presence. We call it the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus had the fruit of the Spirit's work within Him as a man without measure. So you would find love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control in abundance, superabundance within the Lord Jesus as a man. 
or think of the Lord Jesus as the Messiah, as the anointed Messiah. He came not only with the fruit of the Spirit, He came with a special anointing of the Spirit to be the Messiah. And this is what the the anointing of the Spirit to be the Messiah brought with it. The Messiah says in Isaiah chapter 62, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to comfort those who mourn. And so when we see the Lord Jesus Christ healing the sick and purging out the demons from those who have been entrapped by them, for comforting those who are grieving, crying at the tomb of those who have been bereaved, forgiving the sinful, restoring the fallen. When we see Him doing those things, what are we seeing? We are seeing the perfection of the messianic anointing on Jesus at work through the gifts that God gave Him for the task. But there's a third thing. Jesus had perfect compassion in His human nature as a gift of the Holy Spirit and as a result of the experiences that He had in His life. He condescended to become lower than the angels, we were told in chapter 2 of Hebrews. He took on our flesh and bone, we were told in chapter 2. And so, therefore, in our humanity, He exposed Himself to the trials and tests and temptations of human existence. We've noted the human name Jesus that's used here. In His humanity, He lives a fully human life here on earth, and He's taken that humanity to heaven. In heaven, He's able to exercise His office as our great high priest because He still remains the man Christ Jesus. And so we can sing in these words of an old hymn, in every pang that rends the heart, the man of sorrows has a part. We have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet without sin. Or as it says back in chapter 2, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Now, think about this for a moment. This word tempted means to test something or to try something, to put something to the test. It can be a moral test. It can be some other test. When we use it in the sense, the normal sense, as we think of temptation, the effectiveness of temptation comes from the evil intention of the tempter, the evil one, and is matched by the evil nature of the tempted one. You put those two things together, temptation is powerful, but temptation in its own is neutral. And the virtue is to be found in the resistance to the temptation. So the Lord Jesus suffered under all of His temptations and trials and was without sin. Now think about this. Think about what it would be for a human being to be without sin when it comes to thinking about all of those things that make us human, our human feelings and sensitivities. In the Lord Jesus, they were heightened. You think of our intellectual and emotional 
intelligence. We notice this in some people, don't we? Not only intellectual intelligence, but emotional intelligence. And we think of that heightened in Jesus. We think of His spiritual sensitivity to grief and sorrow and shame and fear and danger and loss. All of these affective passions and emotions within His human nature all more sensitive, all more developed, all more strengthened in Him than they are in us. And then think of all of the forces and powers from the outside acting on Him, being felt by Him to a degree far greater than we feel them. Feeling the full brunt of them, So the Holy Scripture is able to say about Jesus, there were no sorrows like His sorrow. His human nature was bent until it nearly broke with the weight of our sorrow, but it never broke. His human mind was nearly driven insane by the weight of our fear and our grief in the garden, but it never reached breaking point. This is it. Jesus had to suffer like us, for us, in His human nature. And only His union with the Son of God so that that human nature is carried, strengthened by His divine nature. And only with the help of the Holy Spirit as a human being, strengthening Him, upholding Him, was He enabled to go further? If I can put it like this, the Holy Spirit supported Jesus to feel more deeply, endure more patiently, and suffer more acutely than we ever, ever do or could do for us. Does He feel for me as a human? Does He feel for a multitude of other people as a human being? How can He do that? He can do that because He is also the Son of God. My dear friends, as you consider this this morning, there is nothing to leave us more undone than this. All that hell had was unleashed against Him. You and I don't get tempted by the devil. We are tempted by demons. We're tempted by the world. We're tempted by our own sinful nature. He was tempted by the top man of hell himself to assert his own will instead of do the God, God's will, to court popularity, to grab power on his own terms, to shrink from the agonies of the cross, to respond to the taunt of his enemies as he's hanging on the cross, save yourself, This author is writing to Christian people who are in danger of succumbing to popular opinion, who are feeling pressed by popular views and and feeling that they are now more and more isolated from society around them, more and more tempted to be quiet when they should speak, to dodge the unpopular position when called on to take a stand. And the author is reminding them of Jesus. He was put in those positions. His closest friends, one of his best friends, Peter, 
the one who had confessed, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, comes to him and says, you don't need to go to the cross. That's a lot of nonsense. Don't do that. There's another way. There must be another way. We don't want you going and dying. We can't have that. You're the Son of God. You can't go the way of the cross. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He is tempted. And in his humanity, every crisis is heightened because he is a human being. He is for us. He is in our place. He is our representative, and he is acting for us. And it's his victory that is our only hope. We are tested in our lives, and we sin. He is tested, and he does not sin. C.S. Lewis writes about this in one of his books. He writes this, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of an army by fighting against it, not by giving in to it. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. You go to the northeast of Scotland on a windy day, and you try to walk along the coastal path at an angle, whatever it is, without falling. It's really a feat of nature. But you only find out the strength of the wind by walking into it, is what he says. A person who gives in to temptation after five minutes does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That's why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because He's the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows what full temptation means. Don't just think about temptation, but think of the trials and the tests that come our way in our lives. None of us feels the full power of those things. We fall before them, we succumb to them, we cave in, we lose heart, we despair. I was once standing at a street corner in London, waiting to cross the road, and was looking at the sign, waiting for it to change, which was highly unusual, really, because I usually didn't wait for the signs. Um, but I was obviously keeping the law on that occasion, which was what got me into trouble, actually. I standing there at the street corner when, when suddenly something hit me on the shoulder and spun me round, and I nearly fell on, onto the street. A bus had mounted the pavement, and the bus had come into my shoulder and pushed me away. You know, that's the, kind of, that's the way it is with temptation and testing in our lives. It strikes us. It comes to us out of the blue. It comes to us suddenly. Where it's unexpected. Temptation to sin or maybe some trial comes into your life, a diagnosis or, or some problem at work comes out of the blue. It spins us. We lose our bearings for a moment. Perhaps we will actually fall down. 
But that's nothing to being hit full on by the bus. And Jesus was hit full on by bus after bus after bus after bus. He takes the full weight of human experience and it hits him over and over and over and over again. He does that on our behalf as the Holy One of God. He's able to say as a human, strengthened by God, I've been where you are and I've felt the weight. I felt the true weight of the bus impact me. Now, it's on the basis of that then, in verse 16, that we are told that we have a helpful and merciful high priest. On the basis of knowing how sympathetic he is, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. Were you thinking that throne was awesome, scary? Well, it is awesome, and it is scary, but it's only scary to those who don't know the one who sits on the throne. It's a throne of grace. That means favor, favor, free favor, free gift. We receive grace so that we are to come with confidence so that we may receive mercy. That's the compassion of God towards us in our need. And find grace, that is, favor, to help us, timely help in our moment of need. This one who sits on the throne is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who has the destiny of the world in His hands. As we read of in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, as uh, John sees a throne and a book, a book of destiny unopened with its, with its seals on it. And people are asking, who is worthy to open the, the book that unfolds the destiny of your life and mine and of the world? And nobody else, no other creature, no angel, archangel, is found worthy to open the book except the Lamb who has been slain, who comes forward who receives the rapturous applause and praise and worship of all of heaven. Because his death, his death on the cross was not only the means of reconciling sinners to a holy God, but was the means of destroying and being victorious over all the powers there are. And so says the writer, we can come with confidence. It means with bold frankness. We can come speaking freely to God through Him. We can come boldly, speaking openly, honestly, frankly, fully, pouring out our hearts to Him. Because when we come through Jesus, we're not coming in our own merit The big question is asked in Psalm 24, who can ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in His holy place? The answer, only those who've got clean hands and a pure heart. That's not me, that's not you, not any of us. Who is this one? The psalmist goes on to tell us it's the King of glory who comes.
He comes. Open the gates for Him. He goes into the sanctuary. He climbs the hill of the Lord. And because He goes, we go with Him. We come with Him in His train, clinging on to His belt. We go with Him with confidence into the presence of God. We speak boldly to God. We come bringing our petitions and our cries and our burdens and our fears and our worries and our anxieties and our hopes and our dreams, and we pour them out frankly to Him. We don't hold back. We don't feel that I can't talk about this subject to Him or or that subject to Him. We bring and we talk about any subject to Him because we know that we've been invited to come on the basis of our great high priest to the throne of grace, and there to find timely help for our need. Brothers and sisters, that is the great joy that we have as we come to Jesus today. We find mercy and grace for our time of need. The ascension of Jesus was a historical event. It happened in the past. He is there in heaven right now. He is with us as the Son of God, and He is within us by His Holy Spirit. And at any moment, you may turn to Him and speak boldly to Him. Go right into His presence. You know, the notion in the Middle Ages was that Christ was so remote, He needed someone else to speak to so that he would, they would speak to him. You don't get that from this text, do you? You come boldly to him, as you are, and find grace to help you in your time of need. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the encouragement of knowing that we have a man in heaven, someone who shares our human nature, who has our interests in his heart, and that we're encouraged to come with boldness into your presence through him. We pray that this morning we'd rejoice in that and live with that glorious thought, and we pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.